welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast, and... Um... As I promised, for those of you who watched the uh, YouTube live stream yesterday, I promised I'd have my good buddy Ben Smith with us. Uh, ben, go ahead and say hi. Good morning, guys. Thank you for having me, John. <laughs> yeah, ben, Ben's been a good buddy. He's an awesome hunter. Uh, both used to be fellow Wisconsinites. Um, you've actually uh, picked up a really good position here at a at an awesome company, and um I've been I've been helping you out with some of your stuff, and we'll get into that. But um, I just really wanted people to be able to feed off your expertise. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk hunting and stuff like or uh, archery and stuff like that too. But um, Ben, why don't you give us just a little background on what you're doing now, and then we'll get into some of these topics. And uh, you know, I, I don't want this podcast to be a sales pitch, and it's not gonna be. But, um, you know, for those of you who follow me, you know that I really like, I really like sticking to um, different brands and products that I really believe in. And I, I really like sticking with good people within the industry. And um, Ben and I go quite a ways back and he's got extreme knowledge. He's a super successful hunter and he's also recently converted over to over to Hoyt so that makes him just a little bit better but uh yeah go ahead and tell us um what all you're part of now and in all of them this big conglomerate which is actually a really really good thing for the sure. hunting industry. thank you John I certainly appreciate it and uh I apologize if there's some some minor gaps in here kind of cutting in not a little bit but I could hear you for the most part but uh, I do sales uh, and marketing at GSM so I'm, I'm fortunate enough I can do uh, both of those positions that I certainly love and make the time for them both so uh, GSM as you mentioned uh Somewhat of a recent transition, but I believe it or not, I've actually been here three and a half years. Uh, started as a sales manager, took over the marketing position uh, approximately two years ago, and I've been doing both ever since. Well, let people know what GSM, how many parts there are to GSM now. Yeah, so GSM stands for Good Sports and Marketing. It's kind of the parent company, and there's several brands under GSM's umbrella. Stealth Cam's uh, our biggest brand, followed by Walker's, uh, which is Walker's Game Year. We've recently actually created several new items and products uh, designed to go specifically at the shooting market. So we've actually dropped that game year, so we didn't really pigeonhole ourselves into just specifically the hunting category. And then outside of Walker's, uh, we have several other brands, uh, Western Rivers Electronic Game Callers. We have American Hunter Wildlife Feeders. Um, we actually have Cyclops Lighting Solutions, which is hat clips, headlamps, spotlights, uh, SSIs, uh, sighting system instruments, laser bore sighters, and then maestro game calls, turkey calls, uh, as well as zone-based layer apparel. So several companies underneath uh, that GSM umbrella. Yeah, yeah. It's been, um, it's been a really fun company to be part of, to be honest with you, because um, for those of you who've been watching, you'll notice I just like simple things. I don't know why, but sometimes the smallest little things at the ATA shows are the ones that are coolest. That little hat clip, I love that thing wear that all the time and 
Um, and then I guess I might as well just jump in because the game ears have literally totally changed my way of hunting again because I had, you know, I, str- I grew up in the Mississippi Delta. I, I grew up um, around shotguns and duck blinds and uh, never had heard of uh, hearing protection. And unfortunately, my hearing is has definitely paid the price. And uh, if it weren't for having Sharon or Harry or a camera person sometimes in the tree with me, uh, I wouldn't. I really would never have had any idea how little I actually get to hear when I'm hunting, um, because they're always telling me something's coming or did you hear that grunt or you know there's a turkey talking right over there and I'm just like where. And you actually, I was talking to you about that um, a little over a year ago, I guess. And you, you know, you kind of told me, you're like, well, dude, we have walkers. You need to let me get you a pair and try these things out. And they just totally changed. They changed my hunting. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I think for people out there that are suffering from this, they really need to get a better understanding of how much or what this can actually do for you. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, for people that have never used any type of electronic uh, amplification, um, they're really uh, pretty pretty amazed when they put something in their ears, whether it's a muff they put on their head while they're shooting um, or it's a game mirror or something of that nature that they use to enhance their hunting experience. However, the cool part about it is it has the best of both worlds. So whether you're an archer or a gun hunter or a shooter, um, not only is it going to amplify your hearing up to nine times your natural hearing ability, depending on the model, um, but it's also going to go ahead and, and actually protect your hearing as well, too, if you're using uh, anything, uh, guns or anything, a little bit higher noises uh, that may be harmful to your hearing. So, But it's pretty incredible when you can get in the stand and uh, hear things that you've never been able to hear before or simply just have the confidence in your position where you can actually go out and uh, know that nothing's going to sneak up on you anymore. Uh, and anytime you can hear something ahead of time and just get ready, uh, just allows you to um, do whatever you need to do, your routine, when you're ready to, to really try and harvest an animal. Oh yeah. Now what um for the average for the average people which products would you recommend them starting with? Cuz I have like I have an actual custom mold. Yeah, for the average people, I'd probably recommend uh, one of our game ears. Um, typically, your retail on entry-level game ears is going to be at approximately $175. Um, now, you can certainly get one, and that will help you uh, enhance your hearing significantly. However, typically, when you get one, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, the ability to hear, but you won't be able to pinpoint exactly where that is coming from. So that's why I always recommend a pair, even though they're sold in singles, um, but that pair is really going to give you that best directional sound capability uh, and really pinpoint where that animal is coming from. Yep, because your brain kind of needs, it ha- It learns with both sides, so, you know, that's, that's what actually allows, I think, your brain to kind of figure out almost like true surround sound, you know, otherwise it's it's like having um, sure. it's like having an entertainment center in your house where everything's just hooked up to one channel. You, you know, so a bike drives by. It doesn't necessarily drive by on the right side of the room. It just drives th- through the room, so to speak. Now, yeah, exactly. Um, you just sent me a text. Said you're having trouble, um, having trouble hearing. So I might ring you with my 
with my cell phone and you'll have to listen with one ear and talk with the other yeah that sounds better to me just to make sure i don't miss something on accident or awkward pauses if uh if you ask me a question and i can't hear you so okay um so i really want to talk about i really want to talk about these cameras because you are you've always been serious a serious whitetail hunter and you've always really really taken a lot of you take scouting cameras to the next level you take it beyond my level you're you're really into you're really into all the different features of the cameras and plot watchers and you got some you know i know in the past you've talked to me about programs that help organize organize all your photos and i'm just you know i I might maybe i'm wrong but i feel like i'm i feel like i'm um the same as all the other people that I know and that I just go out, I put my cameras out, you know, once a week I'll go pull cards. I put them on the computer and I just sit there and look at them one by one by one by one until I see something that I like. And then, you know, they're kind of all joggled around on my computer. But with these last cameras I just got, and one of the reasons I liked stealth cam was, and you know this because I was actually very frustrated with with another brand, and I won't even mention it, but I was super frustrated with one brand, so I ended up just kind of going on the market, I guess. I, I kind of had a few people offer me some cameras, and I tried another camera that I had heard a lot of good things about, but honestly, it was... The camera wasn't bad, but it it worked off motion, and it was just one of those things where you'd have two and three and four thousand pictures, and it's nothing but CRP grass blowing around, and it just gets it's so time consuming that it was almost not worth it. And and um, I got one of these stealth cams. I actually got several cameras from from Cabela's, and out of all of them, I mean, your camera was was awesome i haven't had any problems in my batteries lasted me an entire year um and i don't i haven't had any like yellow pick you know orange solid orange screens or black screens or you know all that crap that that i've had in the past i haven't had to deal with so if you don't mind i wouldn't i'd like you to kind of go off here a little bit on what you actually do with with your trail cams what time of year you get them out and then let's also talk through some of the features that we've got right now um on these newer cameras because i'm you know i'm not the type of guy that even your presets are so simple i'm kind of honestly yesterday when i put mine out um i just went into preset modes and i'm kind of cool with that but i actually want to learn a better way and a better process of doing this um i want to learn a better way and process of doing all this stuff too so i'll let you um kind of tell us what your how you do it and then i'll chime in perfect yeah well i appreciate that uh, one of my favorite features that a lot of people aren't aware of uh, and sometimes it's difficult to explain in, in a print ad or you don't have the time or space um but one of my favorite features is our time-lapse mode actually has a uh, an active PIR sensor while that setting is in place. So a great example of this, and what many people don't realize or understand, is 
if you have it on the edge of a food plot, whether it's something you've planted yourself, uh, it's alfalfa field the farmer has, you, you plant corn, just pick the corn, whatever it may be, typically those cameras only sense out to about 60 feet or so on average. So anything that comes in front of that camera, you're going to get a picture of. But think about how big that field is and how much data you're losing because uh, of the limitations of the range of that camera. Well, what I like to do is put it on this time-lapse mode, and I'll have it set to take a picture either once an hour, uh, sometimes up to five or six pictures an hour. And what will happen is throughout the course of the day, you're going to get five or six blank pictures uh, every hour, maybe in the middle of the day. However, the first couple hours or the last couple hours of the day, what you're going to get is a snapshot of that food plot, and off the distance, uh, oftentimes you're going to see several deer or turkeys or whatever you're using it for way out in that field. You're going to find out where they're entering the field, how long they use the field, and how long they're there for, uh, which can also not only help you pinpoint where you maybe should hang a stand or another camera, uh, but how to hunt that field, how to access it, uh, when to get into it, and when to get out of it. Um, so it's an advanced feature that I like to do, and I like to typically put it out on uh, scrapes, uh, usually in September or October. And uh, when those scrapes start heating up, as most everybody knows, um, you know that's kind of a, a point where all these deer come to. Um, however, you still get all that activity from that food plot as well. Too. Um, so that's a, a great feature. Uh, the only downside to it is that you're going to have some blank pictures throughout, throughout the day. And as long as you understand that and you know the camera's not taking blank pictures, uh, then it's not a big deal because our battery life's fantastic. Some extra blank pictures isn't going to hurt anybody. There's plenty of uh, room to store those on your SD card. Um, so I think with our cameras, people are so used to never having any blank pictures that when they start seeing a few, they think maybe the camera's wrong, but uh, they just have to understand if you put it in time-lapse mode, that's what it's designed to do. So that's definitely one of my favorite features. Uh, and then one of my second favorite features that we have that nobody else does is we actually have two different settings when it comes to the shutter speed at night. And we call that advanced blur uh, and standard blur technology. And just so that everybody understands, the cameras are preset uh, in the quick set one, two, and three, as you mentioned that you've used, John, um, to advanced mode. And just to kind of quantify that for people, in advanced mode, that shutter speed opens and closes almost three times as fast as it does in standard mode. So essentially what you're going to do is take a snapshot of that animal at night and, and minimize or even completely eliminate any of that motion blur. And as most people know that have used infrared cameras in the past, uh, if you get any uh, infrared blur, especially on a moving animal, which the cameras are designed to pick up, obviously, uh, then you get an unusable image. And if you tell, you can see it's a buck, but you can't tell how big it is. Uh, you can't target that animal, especially if you have specific management goals in place or whatnot. That doesn't do you any good. So with our advanced mode, essentially uh, what I like to call the most usable image as possible. The only thing you're really sacrificing in advanced mode is uh, slight picture quality. It's going to be ever so slightly grainier just because it doesn't allow quite as much light as it normally would. Um, but again, if you have the most usable picture and you never have to worry about motion blur, um, that's why I think our cameras are performing at such a high level. And if you only get that buck of a lifetime once or twice and uh, all you do is blurry picture of them, doesn't do any good, like I mentioned. So the cool part about the cameras is you do have the ability to go into custom mode and set them on standard mode if you'd like. Now, what you're going to get with standard mode is better image quality and maybe a little bit more distance at night, but it has to be under optimal conditions. So it has to be an area you know animals are coming into and stopping. So typically, I only recommend advanced mode to people that want the best quality photos 
in an area that they're setting it to a one to three picture burst or more so that animal comes in if it's still moving and it first triggers it it's going to stop at some point and one of those pictures in that sequence is going to have that animal standing still and it's going to give you that best quality picture um, so that's another really cool feature that i like to use as well too that a lot of people don't really know about in our new cameras yeah and you know if you go back to the to like that time lapse feature you know that's equivalent to what you essentially do with a photography camera if you go into a time lapse mode it's just taking pictures at a certain amount of time to kind of capture almost like that you know that cool kind of sunset in like a strobe like fashion so that um that's a really good feature there's actually yesterday um well just so everyone knows yesterday i did a, a a um, live stream from the YouTube channel. Unfortunately, um, for some reason, my live stream fed into my John Dudley athlete page instead of the knock on TV page. Um, so if you want to watch it, I did share it on the knock on TV page. Unfortunately, it wasn't live, but um, in the future, just so everyone out there knows, you have to you actually have to um, like the page, um, either my athlete page or the Knock on TV Facebook page. You have to be an active member on there and actually like that page in order to get notifications when I'm going to go live. And this is certainly what I'm going to I'm heading towards. So this is going to be important if you're following what I'm doing. Um, but yesterday when I went live, you know I I kind of showed. Um, a certain setup, a 15-acre setup that I have that's been extremely effective. Um, but then what I also did was showed you, you know, we walked past one of my cameras and one of my camera setups, and I showed this new little bracket that uh, Redneck Blinds is making. And what I like about that, that same bracket, you can actually fasten those right to the blinds themselves and I actually have that same bracket. I've got one on the inside of the blind um, that holds a GoPro. You can screw a GoPro on it. And then I've got also one on the outside of the blind, um, which you can either put a GoPro on there or during this time of the year, you can put a, a game camera on there. So I put my stealth cam on there and went into this plot watcher mode. <clears throat> so from one of my tower blinds, I'm able to have almost like a true eye of what I would see from that blind and it's you know and I'll be able to hopefully um, you know as I leave that camera out there and it gets closer to season I'm going to have a really good idea of when animals are starting to approach that field and also what time of the morning they vacated it and you know that's for me that's what the tool is going to be great for is understanding when they approach and when they vacate you know the ones that are the sporadic ones throughout the middle of the day you're probably going to be able to build less of a pattern on something like that but um, obviously if a big buck hits a food plot in the middle of the day it's cool to get a picture of it but this is really going to be important for knowing and especially closer to the late season a lot of people's that are hunting food sources during the late season they notoriously get in those blinds too late 
and you know they don't really realize how soon animals are actually coming to those food sources during the late season so these this is going to be a really great feature for both of those situations definitely uh, without a doubt, and I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because whether you're scouting a new property or simply just trying to maximize your own scouting hours, as, as you know, um, especially early in the summer, with it being so hot, a lot of these deer don't come out to the food plots until last light, and if you have several fields to watch over and you have to do it all by yourself, um, you know, it's pretty hard to be everywhere at once, obviously, and uh, this just gives you that extra eye, as you mentioned, to really help you. Uh, scout those fields. And I think a lot of people don't understand, too, especially if they have small plots, uh, that deer travel so much differently between their summer patterns and their winter patterns. And if they put a camera out in October and catch a certain deer, uh, and then he supposedly disappears, they think that he got shot by a neighbor uh, and they give up hunting. Well, a lot of times if people keep these cameras out, they understand that those deer are just very elusive, uh, obviously avoid pressure or just certainly lay low at certain times of the year. And uh, they just never know what might come into their property late season, as you mentioned, that's never been there the entire season, um, just because those deer do travel so much, especially if you have food. So, so yeah, great tools, obviously. What? Um, so let's just talk a little bit about what time of year um, – what time of year do you have your cameras out? I mean, when when do you personally start for your cameras? Yeah, so I, I typically, it really all depends where I hunt and what states. Um, I usually, not always, but usually have cameras out year-round. Um, my Wisconsin property that I hunt that my parents own, um, you know, unfortunately, since I live in Texas now, I can't get up there as much as I'd like. Uh, and the little pocket where I'm at is a big valley, and unfortunately, one of our wireless cameras does not work down there. But uh, I typically hound them to put them out uh, in June or July at the very latest. They've actually had them out as early as May this year. Um, but in Texas, as an example here, I run my wireless camera year-round. So if you have the ability to do it, uh, I certainly recommend it. Uh, you just learn so much more about your property, travel patterns, what's truly on there. Um, and if you're ever worried about trespassers or anybody else, you just never know what you might pick up. Uh, the only downside in the summer is a lot of times, depending on where you put your camera, grasses and other things like that can get very high. So you do have to keep that in mind uh, during the summer months that you don't put it on a tree three feet above the ground overlooking a field that's going to get to be six or seven feet tall or it really won't work very well for you. But, um, you know, I'm a big advocate of as many cameras as you can afford to get out there uh, just because it's incredible when you start running more and more cameras uh, what you pick up on only one or two of your cameras out of several of them and uh, had you not had that camera there you probably would not have known um, that that particular animal was living on that property now your property in wisconsin what's that particular property like and and the size of it because you've had you've had some awesome success in wisconsin and you know notoriously if you're in you know if you're in buffalo county that's understandable but some of the other some of the other counties are maybe not as known for big big buck counties so um you've shot some some tremendous deer there and i know you do a lot of your homework so maybe just walk us through what your setup there is and maybe what some of your strategies are that could help some some people that are listening that maybe have a similar setup yeah sure absolutely well uh, the home farm that I hunt on is only 100 acres, uh, and we recently, a couple of years ago, bought another 40 that adjoins it. So it's 140. Uh, it's not a giant property like a lot of people are hunting or they think that these big deer come from. I think uh, 
benefits of the land in the area are a few things. First and foremost, it comes down to topography. Uh, we're in an area of Wisconsin that the glaciers did not hit, so we have several bluffs, uh, hills, and valleys, and these deer are able to really hide. Um, you know, it's a lot harder to take a far gunshot where we're at, so typically a lot of these deer can get to that next age level, uh, especially if you have pretty good neighbors, uh, which is obviously very important I can get into later. But I think more than anything for me and why we've been successful four or five out of the last years is is really looking at the property and finally getting everybody that hunts it on board uh, with the same strategy in terms of how to access stands, how to get out of those stands so we don't bump deer. Uh, an example is early season, we just don't even hunt in the morning. Uh, we just don't want to walk into these areas and food plots and scare deer off. Uh, it happens. People don't realize they're doing it, but it does happen and it does affect those deer. Uh, and then uh, what we're also doing is when we're running cameras, uh, specifically in the summer and the fall, uh, we'll never go into the woods uh, just to check a camera or put up a camera. We usually put all of them on the edge of our food plots that were already in there working constantly with tractors, uh, you know, and whatnot, ATVs. So no pressure out of the norm. They get very used to the tractors and the ATVs and the vehicles getting in and out of there. But I think the single most important thing, too, is certain stand locations, <clears throat> hunting those on specific winds. I don't care what people say about scent elimination products. I've tried them all. Um, you know, None of them are foolproof, even though I believe that some of them do help. Um, but uh, really hunting stands on certain winds. And uh, I think most people um, can look at a particular property and say, okay, these are the key stands uh, when the time is right. Um, but having that patience um, to not hunt those stands until the time is right or until that wind is right is huge as well, too. Um, several of the big deer that we've shot uh, actually have been the first or second sit in that stand on a particular wind direction for that year. Um, so that place is fresh, and I really believe in that. To where the deer would actually feed um, from the canoe or from the fields towards where I parked where the canoe was and I could be back there in a climber or something if something came by me I would have a shot if not I'd have to slip out and canoe out without pretty much burning the whole hunt for the evenings but the fact that you don't hunt at all in the mornings is um, I mean that's that's pretty hardcore because I do have a lot of success during my morning hunts and um, actually one of the questions that came through on the live stream yesterday was, do I prefer to hunt mornings or evenings? And if I had to pick one, I would pick, you know, if I had to pick four hours to be in a tree, it would probably be from eight thirty to twelve thirty, And I would probably say that year round. If, if I had to pick four hours only, and I had to hunt them the exact same time all the time, that would probably be the four hours that I'd pick. Sure. Yeah, I guess one thing that I'll mention, too, just since you brought that up, again, it's going to be specific to your property. Um, you know, it's a little bit different where we're at in Wisconsin. I'm sure you see it uh, similarly in, in Iowa, but uh, Montana, they're coming off these big food plots, and they're traveling a pretty long distance to get back to their bedding area. So there's certainly more opportunity in the morning to get in somewhere and, and hunt and, and stock those particular animals, and it makes sense. But on our particular property in Wisconsin, uh, I just... The deer bed relatively close to the food plots and uh, our cameras, again, another reason why they're so important is the stealth cams just are showing us that these deer aren't moving in the morning very much at all. Uh, and if they do, it's not consistent uh, as it is at night. So that's part of the reason we decided to make that decision. And again, our property is just a little bit more hard to access uh, in the morning just because of how it lays out in all the food plots. And, 
you just bump deer that bump other deer and you think you're making a good way to your stand and it just doesn't seem to work out so that's why we choose to do that uh, early season not to say that it will or won't work for everybody again it's just kind of how your property lays out and, and what your cameras are telling you well you actually have a, co- a couple really good points that we could dive into to help people out because um i get a lot of i actually get a lot of emails from people that are they're describing they found a buck and they they're describing to me what this buck is kind of doing and how would i how would i go after getting this buck you know they'll they'll try to to kind of tell me where the buck lives or what the pattern is and then how would you approach the the bucks and and i've also got a lot of friends that'll like show me a type topo of their property and say okay where would you put the stands um you know i'm just there's a couple things here that are relevant to any situation um first and foremost is your traffic i'm just you know i grew up in the in the mississippi south down in the delta and i just know that our deer down there have much less tolerance for any type of traffic even compared to a midwestern deer Um, which is why a lot of times i'm a lot of times my friends say that i'm going over the top but you know i'm not a huge i'm not a huge advocate of scent control i try to you know, I, I try my best, but I'm not a nut about it because I've been as extreme as I can about it and seen that it doesn't work. Um, so it's it's just a lot of, you know, it's a lot of effort for me to get the same result. A mature animal just has a perfect nose. It's just all there is to it. They're extremely crafty. And um, I just feel like you're imprinting on your entrance and exit can completely change how a property responds to hunting and how successful you can be as a hunter if you are starting to learn how to get in, how to get out, and really how to play the wind and also set up stands. Um, Like for example, there's a couple winds here in Iowa that are, you know you're going to have a straight east wind a few times of the year um during the rut and you also know that during the late season even though it's cold and miserable you're going to have times where you have a southeast wind um during the middle of the winter and you know i have i have late season food sources and late season um I guess transition areas between food sources and beddings that I, that I would be able to hunt in in a morning that is set up for that three or four or five days during the late season where you have that south wind and that stand will literally sit dormant almost 90% of the hunting season but there may be one or two times where it's a good day to hunt and a lot of people might just say well the wind's not perfect but i'll just take my chance i don't ever say that you know i really make sure i have backup locations for for winds that aren't preferable but are most likely going to happen at some time and then i'm a huge advocate of i'm a huge advocate of when i go and check my you know like my game cameras or if i'm mowing or if i'm just 
you know, I never really walk around any of the properties that I hunt. I'll, I'll get on my, my Yamaha, I'll bebop around. I always make the same exact loop. Um, you know, I try to like pull a little mower behind me and just make that, make those rounds. And the animals just, they start to see that as a, as a normal farming practice. And I just think that those little things like that and maintaining that routine. Um, and also like if I'm going to check my, my game cameras, a lot of times I'll check my game cameras either late morning or or I'll check them kind of right about the time I would normally be going out to my stand for an evening hunt. That way, you know, the animals also get used to that same sort of timing of hearing a truck or hearing a vehicle um, drive around. You know, I don't just go out there to, at a wacky time of the day because essentially I would like the I would like the deer to become comfortable with hearing a vehicle about the same time as if I had to come or go on my hunt, so to speak. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's some great information again as well, John. One thing, another thing we've done, uh, I would say on a regular basis, but we're not uh, opposed to doing this. Is if you're hunting in a camp with other people and you have the ability to do it, let's say you're hunting a field edge or a food plot. If you do get pinned down, uh, as an example, by a specific buck you're chasing and you just can't get out. Um, you know, and we don't show up for a certain period of time after it gets dark. Um, you know, we kind of have worked out a little code where maybe uh, my dad or somebody will pull up to the top of the hill in the truck and uh, scare the deer off and, and let you get out, um, you know, because if you're going to scare them off with a vehicle, then instead of you getting out of that tree stand, they don't pinpoint or associate you getting out of that stand location, which would be the, the worst thing that could potentially happen. So. Uh, that's another trick that we use sometimes too yeah i call that bumping and you know you talked earlier about having having the right neighbors and i know that's not always the case but i know that you know i have like a buddy system and me and my me and uh my good friend dustin who i share crop with on for farming um our farms are relatively close to one another so um, there's a few things there. One is a safety protocol. Him and I both know where all of our stands are and kind of we have names for where our stands will be. So it's really easy for me to text Dustin and text Sharon on a group text and say, you know, I'm going to be in the bottoms tonight. And um, a lot of times what will happen is if I'm hunting and I get pinned down like what you're saying, I'll actually just... Um, send a message to Dustin and say, can you give me a bump? And Dustin knows how to come in to those particular spots to literally bump those deer off with, you know, with the machine rather than me having to climb down out of the tree and give that location away. Um, and we normally just alternate, you know, I can't hunt all the time. There's times where he might want to hunt and, uh, I just, you know, he'll say, Hey, I want to hunt. And I'm, you know, certain areas and especially if you're hunting a food plot, if you're hunting a food plot and you're on a food source, it's especially in the evening, it's almost a guarantee that there's going to be more and more and more and more animals in there at dark. You know, that's that's when they're coming. That's when they're going to be there. So you really need to, as a hunter, you need to develop a program to where someone can come in and help 
bump those deer out of that field and let you get in the vehicle and go out and you know like i said dustin and i our program is a lot of times we alternate especially during the early season where we don't you know we don't spend a lot of time hunting in the early season on food sources but when we do we kind of have this little setup where he might hunt a few nights then I'm going to hunt a few nights and I'll just tell him, you know, he might say I might need a bump tonight. And then I kind of know, even though I wasn't able to hunt, I might know that I can go down there um, right about the time that I need to. I can pull a few cards if there's nothing too invasive. I can do a few things on, on maybe my property or even drive around the area and scout and kind of wait for him to, to send me a message saying that he's done with his hunt and then I can go in and get him. And it just, it really changes. It changes how effective you are on mature animals. You know, a lot of people that hunt properties, they don't have success with the four and five and six year old animals. They know they're there. They get pictures of them every early season. They're like, I know I got this big one. I never get to see him. You know, you get to see all of the subdominant bucks, but these little things, these little bitty, um, all the imprints that you do on the ground and the noises you make going in and out and, you know, scaring entire fields off just because you need to get down at night. All that stuff like that is, it really, really adds up to whether or not you're going to get a mature deer. Definitely agree with you 100%, John. Now what, um, I know you guys, and I haven't actually played around with them much, but um, you guys, the Cyclops line, I really liked your, I had actually bought Cyclops because the price was so good. Um, I bought some at at my Shield store, I believe. But you guys are now getting into like light bars and stuff. And this is, I kind of wanted to talk about this for a minute because I bought some light bars for my Jeep that weren't yours. And um, they were ridiculously expensive. And then when you guys brought out your light bars, the price was way, way good. And um, this is something that I think a lot of people are starting to put light bars on their ATVs and also something that we're really starting to do a lot as a family is um, bow fishing. And, you know, light bars are starting to become really, really popular on bow fishing boats as well. So um, what do you guys have in those lines and what are some of the price levels just so that some of the listeners can can kind of hear because I'm all about helping people save a couple bucks too and I think for the value this is definitely something worth talking about yeah absolutely I'm glad you brought that up too John um, it's a new category for us it's a category that is becoming increasingly popular and to your point uh, there's just so many applications for these lights um, you know we've been selling them to guys that are farmers and they just simply want to put them on their uh, their tractors and and mowers and anything else uh, you know and then you got your bow fishing guys that it comes very big with as well um, and then we obviously sell them for ATVs UTVs and, and even vehicles um, so to your point uh, just to give uh, the users uh, you know an idea of price point our, our lowest entry level light's going to be about thirty to forty dollars and that's just going to be a little uh, little cube light and uh, it goes all the way up to a fifty inch dual row light bar 
um, that's going to retail for less than $300, which is pretty impressive, um, not only the, the price tag there, but just because competition-wise, as you mentioned, um, you know, our biggest competitor is selling those for, for well over $1,000. Yes, so 25%. I think, uh, yeah, probably 25% yeah. of the cost compared to, like, Rigid or something like that. Yeah, Rigid's definitely uh, the industry leader there, and uh, I think competition obviously is good for everybody because it does bring some pricing down, but we've been able to uh, essentially comp uh, as far as uh, features, benefits, and output um, almost identical in, in most cases to what Rigid is doing. But again, uh, when you look at somebody's budget, uh, there's very few people that can afford a $1,000 light bar. Uh, just because. But then there's a whole other safety feature and application of this as well, too. I mean, how many times are you on a property um, or would you even not want to let a friend or family member take something out on your property at night because there's washouts or or ditches or, or poles or, or whatever it may be, but just uh, being able to see those and, and truly up everything and just have that visibility where you wouldn't otherwise. Uh, another big feature um, that these things are pretty incredible at night, and they have a combination, most of them, um, when you start getting into a little bit longer light bars, they have the, the floodlight in the center of the, the actual light bar, and typically the outer four to eight inches are going to be, uh, uh, I'm sorry, floodlights are in the outer four to eight inches, and then the, the spotlights in the center. You're going to get not only that powerful direct light forward, uh, but you're going to get that ambient light sideways as well, too, that's really going to show you what's going on off to the side of where you're driving as well, too. Yeah, that it's works really, really good for, um, I know for me, like with my tractor, the factory lights that are on there, because I have a front end loader on my tractor, it gets really, really difficult to do much work at night. But with that light bar being high on the cab, it just, it allows you to do, it allows you to do so much more in a field at night and, and lets you see the same as, as during, you know, the daytime versus, just casting one light through your front end loader and and trying to look through all those shadows gets to be impossible. Yep, and uh, just to kind of touch on uh, some some numbers, uh, some of our smaller light bars, you know, they're they're six uh, six inch round light bars, about twenty seven hundred lumens. Those little cubes that I mentioned, uh, the dual row four inches, uh, sixteen hundred lumens, but the fifty inch goes all the way up to twenty three thousand lumens. So. Pretty darn bright and pretty impressive, especially for that price. Yep. Hey, one thing I, I've never even told you about this, um, but I'm kind of still I'm still thinking back to the food plot where you're kind of stuck in your stand because obviously there's times where I am stuck in my stand. I don't have anyone to come get me. I really need to vacate the field. Um and I think we've all been in that situation. I, I have that discussion with, with a good friend several times during the season when people just say, man, I had to sit there for like two hours before I could get out of my stand. Um, I actually got, and I believe, I'm sure you guys make it, but I bought this little, I, I went to the store and I got this little bitty collar. It's It's not much smaller than, it's about the size of a flashlight, um, and I'm trying to think of the model of it. You know what, what I'm talking about? It's a game caller. It's about the yeah, size. It's uh, about the mantis. Yeah, I think that's it. It's about the size of a of a flashlight, maybe smaller, and it's you know it's an extremely little portable caller, and I actually keep that in my backpack, 
and I keep it in my backpack during whitetail season, not necessarily to like call coyotes or something. Although if I was in a stand and saw a whole bunch of coyotes, I'd probably turn it on. Um, but what I do is I kind of keep it on the coyote sounds and if I'm in the stand, I let it get really dark and I'll kick that thing on and get some coyotes screaming and some pups yipping. And that really helps clear the field as well. Um, you know, if you want to, if you're worried about the deer hearing it come from your stand, it, this one even has a little remote. So you could almost just like, you know, set this, set this thing off to the, you know, as you're walking into your stand, you could almost set it in you know, a little bit away from where you're actually sitting and set it on the ground and just leave it on. But it works really, really well um, for helping you in that situation. Also, I don't know if you've ever used one for that, but I certainly have. I haven't personally yet, um, but I've talked about it uh, with a few people as well, too. But that's just another backup plan to bumping those deer if if you don't have somebody that can help you out. But no, that's a that's a fantastic idea. Um, you know, deer are obviously used to coyotes, and uh, if you get relatively close to them and, and bump them off, um, it's not like you're scaring them out of that area because those coyotes uh, roaming through. And uh, you know, from what I've heard and understand, they'll just be right back in there the next day like nothing ever happened. Now. Now, do you bring, have you, on your particular property, do you kind of have the three essentials that deer look for? Like for me, I know that regardless of what property I, I've ever had, the three things that I know that I need are going to be cover, water, and food. If you can put those three elements on your place, regardless of the size, you really increase your chances to keep deer on that property and you know and that's the case really with any type of animal um i've actually been out west elk hunting with people that have in western terms they would have a very very small place where they may only have one butte that has some pine cover on it yet they hold a herd of elk there and it's mainly because they have that cover you know, they have food and they've got a water source. So those animals just literally are working that same pattern all the time. And until they get detoured from that pattern, they'll really stay in it. And my properties in Wisconsin, my first property was three acres. My second property was 10. And I've shot great animals. And then I think I ended up upgrading to a 40 um, but every single one of those properties, I did really well by making sure that I had those three elements. And actually, and neither and none of those three, I never had. I didn't have water, and I didn't have a, a actual food plot. Um, I just had cover. So in both of those situations, um, the first thing that I did within the first year of getting that property was find one place to put food. And I guess for those of you listening, if I was to tell you one thing to put in, if you only had one thing that you could put in and you really didn't have the right machinery and stuff, probably the best thing to do would be to try to just pay a farmer or someone that has a small disc and a tractor uh, you know, go in, spray, spray an area, or you know, better yet, go in with a disc, disc up an area, let it grow a little bit, spray it again. Um, right when it starts to grow, spray it again with with weed killer, and then from there, broadcast a really good like imperial um, clover mix, and then just get a, a harrow drag 
or you could just do it without dragging it if you do right before a, a heavy rain. And a good clover plot is really dynamite during all times of the year. If I could only pick one, it would probably be pure alfalfa. That I mean, if pure alfalfa or a really good stand of red clover um, would be ideal. And then from there, um, on every every single property I had in Wisconsin. I always had to to dig and bury in um, like horse tanks so that I could bring in water. And having water and that small food plot and then the natural cover that was there, I really I did awesome. And um, I ki- I remember I killed three three you know Pope and Young class animals in a three year period between those three properties and. One of them I shot on my clover um, during the early season, second day of season. Um, the next year I shot the the biggest deer on my place on um, a 50-gallon water tank the second day of season. And the other one I actually shot just in the thick cover during the rut. So, you know, it's just a prime example of those three elements regardless of what type of hunting you're doing are going to be critical for sure absolutely yeah and i'm fortunate enough on our place we do have all three of those we have a little uh spring fed pond um that we built uh, a long time ago it's probably oh 30 yards across um so it's a very nice pond spring fed on one side of the property and we do have a spring fed uh creek on the other side of the property as well so the water's there um, as far as cover is concerned, we've gone in a couple years ago. We hinge cut one of our points and knocked down uh, a lot of popple trees. And uh, rather than harvest those and have somebody bring them out, uh, we actually just hinge cut them as high as we could hold the chainsaw and never cut them all the way through and allowed them to fall uh, and to create these tunnels and, and really thick cover area. Um, and we did that again about 10 years ago as well, too, in a different part of the property that we don't go into. So definitely have the cover, the thick cover, and I think that's part of the reason why we hold so many deer. And then food, as you mentioned, another very, very important key factor is we lease out uh, about 10 acres of corn to a farmer, and then we plant uh, about five acres of our own soybeans, and then we do a little bit of clover and a little bit of uh, brassica, radish type mixes uh, on some smaller half-acre to acre food plots as well, too. So we probably have about 15 to maybe pushing 20 acres of, of that 140 that's in food. So. Hey, before we before we wrap this up, there's two things that have kind of been in the back of my mind that I want to talk about. Um, one is um, you talk, you know, let's talk about. Uh, well, first off, let's talk about um, the if you were to tell people the models that they should look at for cameras and the price ranges. I think that would be great because the price ranges are, you know, I I see some people, you know, they're they're trying to save up to buy a camera that you know, I guess is marketed on the market as being the most dependable. And these things are like, you know, over six or 700 bucks. Um, and you know, I certainly would never buy a camera for that much money, but, um, I want you to just talk about the, the models quick and the price ranges for people. But then I also want you just to touch a little bit on the one that actually 
takes the picture and sends it right to your phone. I haven't ever got one of those, um, and I've never used one, so I'm actually kind of curious on how that works and, and maybe hear whether or not it's something I should try in my area here, um, what you need to make that work. And then last, um, if you could talk about any type of program that maybe you're using right now to help organize photos, and I think that'll be a good way to wrap wrap all this up. Yeah, absolutely. I can certainly do that. Uh, we offer, for the most part, uh, or the majority of our business has done three different model series. The PX series, which is kind of our price point, the ZX, which is kind of the mid-level, smaller camera, and then the G Pro series. And I'll, I'll briefly talk about them all. Um, now, typically, I'll recommend the G Pro just because they obviously perform at the highest level. Uh, however, uh, I don't want anybody to think that our PX series and our ZX series aren't extremely reliable and can do most of the stuff that the G Pro series can do. Um, but again, if you look at a budget, for example, and somebody has $500 to spend on cameras, um, you know, maybe they can get three of our G Pro series, or maybe they can get five or six of our PX series. So again, it depends on your property, what you're ultimately trying to do but uh, our PX series starts out at about a 69 retail it's a PX 14 model it's an 8 megapixel camera has a sub 1 second trigger speed and it still has extreme battery life uh, the biggest thing you're going to notice uh, with regards to the ZX or the ZX or even the, the G Pro series is you're limited on the range uh, out to about 50 feet uh, which for most people, 50 feet is plenty far. If you're going to be using it on mineral licks or baiting stations or trails, that's really all you need. Um, and uh, you start working your way up into the ZX series and the G Pro series, you get some more of those advanced features, which we talked about, which don't apply to everybody, or if they do, they don't apply to every every situation. So if you run multiple cameras, um, some cameras just make more sense. So as an example, with the G Pro series, because they're so powerful uh, as far as the illumination capabilities out to 1,800 feet, a lot of times, if you set those too close, uh, within 20 feet of where the subject's coming from, they're just so powerful that they're going to white out that image a little bit. So I, there's certain areas that are, are, are trans areas or when the rut starts to occur um, you know those are the kind of the hot spots and you really can't get in there and burn those out um, you got to have areas that does feel comfortable and if the does are going to be there when the rut starts that's where the bucks are going to be too so as I mentioned it's it's hard to stay out of some of those stands but some of those stands we don't even hunt until the last couple days of October or the first few days of November so that's uh, something that I truly believe in as well too is not overhunting certain locations, truly uh, picking out certain wind directions, but how to get in and out of those stands as well, too. Sometimes it's going to be a little bit more of an effort to get into a stand or get out of a stand. Um, but again, if you're uh, not spooking that deer, um, you know, he may still move during daylight or whatever it may be. So uh, definitely a big proponent of, of all those coming together to make a solid management plan, in my, my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I agree totally. Um, th well, there's there's been a few things that you've said during that that talk that I was actually like wanting to, I kind of wanted to stop you, but you had, you were rolling, but there were a few things there. Um, one is going to be, that was interesting to me is that you just don't hunt mornings during the early season. Um, I mean, I guess depending, I know that when I hunted in Montana, like on the Milk River until, um, until I started to hunt off of boats where I could actually canoe in in the morning and slip up the back of the banks and be in that cover. Okay. So, so yeah, if you're using the higher-end camera, um, you can potentially get wider images if that subject is too close all the time. Because 
going to take a reading of what it sees all the time out there. And if suddenly the deer jumps in front of it, uh, it's it's trying to illuminate out 80 and 100 feet and it may be too powerful. So um, you can tell what it is, but sometimes I don't recommend those G-Pro series for very close scenarios or if you are using that model, set it back a little bit further. Uh, but then you jump into the ZX series, and that's a camera that operates off of six AA batteries. Uh, it's a lot smaller unit for somebody that's trying to pack as many in as they can, uh, store as many in their bag, or just simply conceal it as much as possible on a tree. Those ZX series cameras fits in the palm of your hand. It's very small, uh, and it can do almost everything the, the G Pro series can, uh, with the exception um, that it doesn't do some of the advanced features we talked about earlier with the adjustable PIR sensor and, and some things of that nature. Um, but the ZX series come in at 10 megapixel, so a little bit higher resolution, a little bit better picture quality than the PX. And they're priced anywhere from 109 to about 139 or 149. And then you jump into the G Pro series, which I personally recommend, and which the majority of our outfitters love to use, just because of the advanced features. Uh, the picture quality is phenomenal and you can just do so many things with it. And then again, if you're using it on food plots and things like that, the illumination range out to 80 and 100 feet is, is pretty incredible, especially for a true no-glow camera. So the G Pro series are going to be anywhere from 129 to 169, uh, depending on retailer and depending on model. The G34 Pro is a non-no-glow camera for those of you that don't require a no-glow. And then the G45 is a true no-glow uh, 14 megapixel camera, whereas the G34 is a, is a 12 megapixel. So anyway, that's kind of how we stack up our starting retail is about 69 all the way up to about 159 or 169 in that G45 Pro, which is one of my favorite cameras. Uh, but then to your point, uh, and if I miss something, let me know, but jumping into that wireless camera, uh, that camera actually the suggested retail is approximately uh, 4.99 uh, as of last year, but we've seen that retail come down a little bit, and the majority of our retailers are selling that for for 2.99 this year. So very very affordable, or it hasn't been in the past. Uh, it does ship with an AT&T SIM card, which we recommend. So our model is a 3G network. So you're going to have to use a carrier that works. Um, obviously, AT&T and T-Mobile are two of the biggest ones in the United States. Now, just so everybody understands, you can have an AT&T or T-Mobile SIM card in that wireless camera that has to have service at that location and still have Verizon Wireless, US Cellular, or Sprint, or somebody else as your phone carrier. They can work together, but what you do need is that AT&T or T-Mobile service at the site of that camera so it can push that data to the cloud, and then you download a free app on your phone that allows you to store and manage your images, uh, and your carrier then is pulling that data down from the cloud. So just so people know, just because you don't use AT&T with your phone doesn't mean you can't use that camera. However, um, you do need service at the point of that camera, which a lot of people don't fully understand. So there is a great tool. If you go to AT&T.com, you can look at their uh, data coverage map. And for the most part, it's pretty spot on in terms of areas that, uh, that will show that you don't get service. And uh, so it's a pretty good indicator to tell you whether or not it'll work there or not. Now, what I also do is recommend running it with a 12-volt battery box on a solar panel. That way, for me as an example here in Texas, I can keep it out year-round. I don't ever have to go and check it if I don't want to. Uh, usually, I will replace that 12-volt battery, just swap it out, recharge it um, about once, or once, maybe twice a year just to make sure that it is fresh for sure. 
But the benefit of this wireless camera is it sends it directly to your phone, but it all goes through this app. So you can determine uh, the notifications on your phone and how often it's updating you. You know, if you're trying to work a nine to five during the week and you don't want it blowing you up all day, you can have it set to upload only once a day at a certain predetermined time interval. So usually what I do until it's closer to season, I'll only have it upload twice a day. So I'll have it upload at 10 p.m. at night and maybe 10 a.m. in the morning. That way I get all that information um, you know, that night before, all through the night, and then most of that morning activity until the next day. Um, but you do have the ability to set that to instant, hourly, twice a day, or once a day. But I think the biggest, uh, most important factor for this camera is just obviously always knowing what's there and what's going on, but it makes it so easy to manage and store your photos. Um, you can immediately text that photo to somebody or email it to friends or family if you want to share it. Uh, to social media, you can do that at one click of a button as well, too. So um, did that cover most of, of what you're looking for, John? Yeah, for sure. And, well, I can tell you that if I was at work, that's when I would want my my pictures to come through. <laughs> I would not schedule it when I'm at home chilling. I would schedule it from 9 to 5 um, so that I could check some of that stuff out. So what is the cost? Um so are you paying a, a certain price per month to have that SIM card? And and literally, I mean, ultimately you have a SIM card that's connected to a network. So what is the cost per month for that SIM and the camera? Yeah, yeah that's actually another very good question as well, too. Um, so I have one in Texas that I'm paying $10 a month with T-Mobile. T-Mobile is a little bit cheaper, um, but again, it doesn't always work everywhere. And for me, just as an example, and this doesn't pertain to everybody, but because even though the wireless camera is a 12 megapixel camera and can take 12 megapixel photos and save those on the SD card, it's actually transmitting a, a quite a bit smaller photo that's maybe closer to, to one megapixel, between one and two megapixel. So most of these images um, are, are relatively small, and you can store uh, a lot of those without using too much data. So. With a one gigabyte per month plan, um, you know, I'm getting that for $10 through T-Mobile. However, what we're doing with numbers now, if you're using AT&T, is, is sending those AT&T SIM cards with them that you activate. The cool part about it is now you can log on to AT&T's website. It's attbysession.com, and uh, they give you those data plans, and you can pick which one pertains to you. So you can do, I believe it's... $25 a month with AT&T for a one gig plan. If you want to do a three gig plan, I think it's 30, maybe $35 a month. But typically what I've seen is anywhere from 10 to $35 a month, depending on your plan. Now, now the AT&T card also to bypass having to talk to anybody at AT&T. Uh, you can set your camera up in five minutes. It's extremely easy. But if you wanted to go into an AT&T or T-Mobile um, location, as an example, and talk to somebody, they may or may not be able to bundle some cameras for you if you're using multiple units and, and drive that price down per camera just a little bit. Yeah, now is that... Um, is is that is, would that cost be per camera or is it almost like a phone where like if I set up a plan with my phone all four all four of our family's phones are all under that one plan I mean is that going to be a per sim card type type price yeah it's going to be a per sim card type price uh, but again as you mentioned uh, some locations are able to bundle that for you give you multiple sim cards that are all associated to one account and as long as each one uh, individually doesn't go over a certain data limit I mean right. you combined all the 
example, you might be able to say, all right, well, I want five gigabytes of data between these three cameras. And as long as you control that and don't go over, um, they'll charge you a specific price for that. So yeah, that's, so awesome. that's uh, something that's a little more difficult to do. Um, it requires going in and talking to somebody and getting that set up, but it's certainly not impossible by any means. It's just if you're going to get just one camera as an example, uh, that included AT&T SIM card a lot of times is the cheapest way. And uh, you know how it is with people setting up service, and even when they're talking about their cell phone or whatever else, sometimes it's just time-consuming, and you don't know who you're talking to. Maybe they don't understand what you're trying to do. So we're trying to simplify that process by including that SIM card and making it that much easier to set up. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's, I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to look into getting one of those. It sounds really cool. Well, Hey, man, I really appreciate it. I know this isn't like a traditional knock-on podcast in the fact that I didn't go down any extreme uh, technical rabbit holes. But, hey, we're getting closer to hunting season now, and we've got a lot of hunters that listen, just as many as target archers. And um, this is all super important stuff. And, you know, I've got got buddies that I know uh, their forte is geeking out on stuff that is relative to our industry, but not necessarily... Uh, all bows and arrows and cams and limbs and all that kind of stuff so um, this has been cool for me because I'm I'm into cameras but I'm not like I'm not in depth and knowledgeable on them I think I'm just an average Joe so this was a uh, super cool for me to hear about some of these things because I know um, I'm just really pumped that you that you actually got that position at GSM um, because for sure, the game ears have totally changed my life. Loved them. Um, the cameras, again, you guys heard prices. I bought, you know, I bought some at Cabela's several years ago. I bought one of every camera there, and in the end, this one with a price range that allows you to buy multiple ones for the price of some of the more expensive ones. And I was able to get a camera that, you know, batteries once a year. Um, pictures are always really really good and haven't had any any type of firmware problems i've never even had to update my firmware and i'll tell you the other thing too ben i I haven't actually ever told you this but you know what i love is um i actually put some brand new cameras out um yesterday and i just love when i you know i had i had my boy harry set up my cameras he literally put the batteries in and i was going to try to train him like how to actually work a, a game camera and i said okay well you're gonna have to like set the date and set the time and he's just like well no it's got the right time and then i kind of looked and i'll be dang you guys had you know you, you take it out of the box put batteries in there and it was it was going man it was on time on on date and you know, to me, that's just that says a lot about, about a lot about the products, and I I just really like that, and and I certainly with those lights, um, it's cool that you guys got acquired Cyclops because that was just a total price point light that was um, really inexpensive. I always wear them on my hat, and and I always have some in my backpack, and if I'm hunting with people that's the one thing everyone forgets a light i don't know how many times i've hunted with someone and they're like oh man i don't have a light they don't have a light or a knife that those are kind of my two pet peeves and uh i always just have some of those extra ones in there and you do make them in green which is i'm a big fan of only using green lights when i'm coming and going to the stand so 
pretty cool, man. I appreciate it, and and uh, man, I hope I hope some of our hunter friends out there learned a little bit from this podcast. I know I sure did. Yeah, well, I certainly appreciate you having me on as well, too, John. Uh, and thank you for the kind words, and uh, we appreciate all you do for us. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time on another Knock On podcast. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com <laughs>